Hello and welcome to the Light from Light podcast. My name is Brother Thomas Therese and today, as ever, I'm joined by my co-host and friend, Daniel. Say hello. Yeah. He's, hello. He's not well at the moment. He's got COVID, so uh, don't worry. We're doing <laughs> this all online. You can't catch it through the waves. You can't we, catch it through thought, the waves. We thought we couldn't miss our 50th episode. Yeah, our Pentecostal episode. Although it's not Pentecost anymore. We've done Pentecost. Oh, but happy, Pentecost happy 50th time. episode. Congratulations. We've done yeah. well. It's pretty cool, isn't it, really? You know, We've done yeah. well. Yeah. <laughs> We've done all right. We've done all right. Pat on the back. <laughs> I'm I'm surprised I'm surprised how well um, I'm surprised how I'm I'm well no I'm not su- I'm surprised that we've managed to keep it up to be honest surprised how many episodes we've managed to put together yeah yeah I mean I'm not the most organized person in the world as everybody who knows me knows I'm amazed that people are still listening <laughs> well thank you to our, our listeners of course anyway today we're going to be talking about the early church so what did the early church look like we're going to be uh, looking at scripture we're going to be looking at some of the the uh, church fathers and conditions of the christians and jordan the in the um, first few centuries so maybe we should start with what sort of what the biblical data tells us what does the bible tell us about what the early church was like yeah i i so it's the first thing that i'd like to say is that you know, you could spend hours and hours, you know, days, weeks even looking into this because the, the history that's covered, even like the documented history of the early church is, is there's just so much of it. Um, I, I remember coming to visit you in Oxford and the Blackfriars Library um, there and you, you were showing me around and there, there are just, like, there are rows and rows of books on just what the early church um, writers had to say. And you said that that's not even a, a drop in the ocean of how much writing we have, we have. Yeah, I mean, I mean look at like true. Augustine only. Like, I mean, Augustine was such a prolific writer, writing in the fourth century, and I mean, he wrote so much. I I think there's a joke that said that uh, if anyone says that they've, um, if anyone says that they've read all of Augustine, um, they haven't. I can't remember the joke. <laughs> That's great. Typical. Can you remember? I can't remember. I can't remember. It's something it's like so that. So funny. Isn't it? I can't even um, remember. That is hilarious. Uh, I mean, you're, you're right. There. Oh, I remember. I remember. It was a monk. It was a monk. Um, after the funeral of Augustine, uh, this uh, everyone was saying how much they knew about Augustine. And Augustine said, if anyone says they read all of Augustine's works, they're a liar because there's so much of his stuff. Gosh, that's funny. I couldn't remember it. You're right. You're right, though. I mean, uh, if you look at the, I mean, not just Augustine, but the, but the others as well, Ignatius, the Italian, uh, Origen, um, Irenaeus, um, all of the the early church fathers, um, and the other sort of stuff like the martyrdom of Perpetua and Felicity, um, and then the secondary literature that people have written about the early church. Um, like I think of, of yeah, so is it Henry Chadwick's um, stuff on the early church and stuff. I mean, there has been so much written. Uh, there is so much out there. But we're going to give a truncated sort of little insight into what we see. And that's also not to mention, of course, uh, all the various gospel commentaries and commentaries on Acts of the Apostles and the commentaries on Paul's letters, which are also... Um, speaking into that reality of the of the the church in her in her nascency and her in her origins, you know. So um, nascency means birth. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there, there's there's so much there. I mean, we're not even gonna be able to 
cover the main points of the of the early church but we we just wanted to spend some time on it because we we had pentecost as the last episode and how the the church really started so i suppose first of all then in in acts i think this is probably a good snapshot of how the church really starts i, th- I think we mentioned last week about the the three waves of the of the book of acts um which really are like three waves of the church's activity but i just wanted to to touch on that because um, you, you can you can see it actually quite delineated quite well. So in Acts chapter one to eight, you can see the apostles are empowered by the Holy Spirit to preach the word of God in Jerusalem, and then you have in uh, Acts chapter eight to six, you have the church taking the gospel to Judea and Samaria, and then from chapter thirteen onwards, you have the gospel being taken to the ends of the earth, and that's really fulfilling the promise that Christ made at the start of acts that the apostles would receive the power uh, would receive power when the holy spirit comes upon them and that they would be witnesses in jerusalem witnesses throughout judea and samaria and to the ends of the earth so really the rest of acts is fulfilling that promise of of christ and then you see that then in in the life of of the of the early church they're really fulfilling what christ has said they're carrying on the mission of christ so really you see the the marks or hallmarks of what the church is uh, is is really continuing christ's mission and very close to christ because ultimately christ is the head of the the church and the the church is his body so where the head uh went the church goes as well so you see lots of lots of themes that we want to pick up today are are very much in the life of christ himself and what about like then the particulars of what the daily day-to-day life of the church looked like so i'm thinking for example in the second um the second chapter of acts 238 onwards so peter said to them repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of jesus christ that your sins may be forgiven and you'll receive the gift of the holy spirit for the promise is for you for your children and for all who are far away, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to him. And he testified with many other arguments and exhorted them, saying, Save yourselves from this corrupt generation. And on that day about 3,000 persons were added. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship and to the breaking of bread and to the prayers. Um, There I think we get a bit of an insight into some of the particular things that were important to the to the early church so baptism uh, baptism as rep- uh, uh, for repentance and the forgiveness of sins the receiving of the holy spirit the devotion to the teaching of the apostles which then gets handed down or traditioned down that's what tradition means handed on um to uh, communion or fellowship uh, and the breaking of bread and the prayers the breaking of bread there uh, being uh, a reference to the Eucharist and the prayers um, there are prayers sort of throughout the day so for example in Acts 3 1 just a few verses later it says um, one afternoon Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer the ninth hour uh, which is about three o'clock in the afternoon I think um, uh, and then they they heal a, heal a lame man just like Jesus uh, does so you see that the reality of the of some of the daily living um and also they have other things as well like you also read in acts about the sharing of goods according to people's need 
um, and later on in Acts, there's a dispute that arises because some of the Gentile Christians are saying that they're being neglected in the distribution of food and goods and things like that. Um, and so then uh, the apostles appoint particular uh, men to act as, uh, well, for for the service or um, for the diaconates, basically, for diakonia. Di um, for yeah for service in order for the helping of the distribution of these goods so that way they could um, uh, so that the apostles could focus on preaching the word of God and things so um, yeah you start you start seeing this structure in the church also developing then quite early on the importance of the apostles is uh, established in the and their teaching um, because this is then how you know that, that what is being taught is authentic because it's the apostolic faith and the apostles receive this from Christ himself, so from God himself. And they hand this on and they pass this on and they pass this on and they pass this on and it gets passed on down throughout the ages. So then by, you know, with people like um, uh, Irenaeus of Antioch um, in the second century and also people like uh, Ignatius, uh, it, it becomes very important that the role of the of the um, bishop and the role of the those who hand on the the uh, teaching of the apostles and um, being able to trace that back becomes really important, doesn't it? Yeah, I suppose it links to what we said in I think in the previous episode that the that the apostles are very um, very keen to to preach Christ. I mean, that's what they go out to preach what christ has has revealed to them they you know they really go out to preach him and then the what the apostles hand on to their successors is is that same i, I mean we call it like the deposit of faith don't we that that full revelation that full self-disclosure of christ himself so they're handing that on to uh, to to others through that preaching and the the early church fathers these leaders of the church are very keen to show that they're not coming up with this from from nowhere they're not preaching their own uh, wisdom their own teachings they're very keen to show that actually what they're preaching is they they've received from from those who've come before paul them as so, well right i mean you see this in the letters yeah. of paul as you said in the last episode when he says you know thank god you've accepted this for what it is god's message and not some some human thinking and so really, and, and again, in another place, he says, woe to me if, if I if I do not preach the gospel. But there is this sense in which they only have the authority to preach um, as is bidden to them by Christ um, to pass on that faith. And this doesn't mean that it doesn't deepen. Of course, it deepens. And um, we're given the Holy Spirit to be able to discern the signs of the times and to be able to respond to new challenges, things like IVF and contraception and things um, uh, were not as much of a, uh, as actually, I mean, you do hear actually about contraception being spoken about in the early church, but it's not as something as prevalent as it became um, in the uh, 70s sort of onwards, you know, Um but the reason why we get the Holy Spirit is because the Spirit leads us into all truth. So then the church is able to uh, discern these things and to be able to um, pass some sort of judgment or speak authoritatively on these things. But not from the authority of the individual uh, themselves, but an authority which is given to them by another. 
uh, and that's something that's very important. And this is why you have Irenaeus wanting to point out um, that you have something like apostolic succession, whereby you trace your lineage back to the apostles, so that way you can say my message is authentic because it comes it comes through this through this line. Yeah, I think Irenaeus was the first to uh, document the immediate successors of Saint Peter. So Irenaeus of Leon, I think he was writing. I think oh, I've got it written here. He was writing around one seventy AD when he compiled that list of the successors of Peter. But I mean, this this again speaks to something which a lot of the church fathers found important to mm. show really the pedigree of the, of their teaching. So you have Clement of Rome, who you know, is a successor of Saint Peter in Rome, mm-hmm. you know, one of the popes. He shows that his pedigree comes from Peter and Paul. So he knew them. He he heard from them. He heard their preaching. Uh, they gave. They passed on that authority uh, to him to to preach himself. Uh, another one. Uh, Papias of Hierapolis, you know, writing around the same time, around uh, 100 AD, he staked his authority mm-hmm. on the fact that he was a hero of John, John the Apostle. So, th- so they saw it as so important to show yeah. where this lineage came from. And of course, that's you know something we we have now. We have that handing on um, that we st- we still mm. see now in the church, and um, that stretches all the way back uh, to. Well, this is something that you see, I mean, very important for Irenaeus, and he points out that Polycarp is a companion of Papias, who you you were just talking about, um, who is called another hero of John. Um, Yeah, uh, yeah, (laughs) there's not much uh, more to say about that. It's important that they have this, that they have this connection. So there are extra biblical uh, uh, evidences and testimonies from people very early on claiming to um, be friends of the apostles who knew Jesus and they ask these people questions. That's one of the things to remember is in the early uh, in the early church, um, Jesus and the apostles are in living memory. Um, and in the very early earliest cases, people like Polycarp, um, uh, Ignatius, they know they they a, a polycarp polycarp knows john you know yeah and and polycarp is in is in touch with with irenaeus uh, i i i think uh from memory irenaeus writes writes a letter to polycarp i think uh from memory yeah well Ir- irenaeus um says that in his youth he spent time in the presence of men who had lived with the apostles i mean i mean that's the thing it's not that they these people just heard them preach and said that they spent time with them they mm-hmm. they lived with them and mm-hmm. I, you know they have we said before uh benedict's benedict XVI's great quote that religion is not just a, an intellectual pursuit that you hand on it's it's a whole uh, your whole being is caught up your whole life is called into into um following christ and and it was with these apostles and they they didn't just uh, intellectually accept the the way of of Jesus, yeah. they they said yes with their whole lives, and that that brings us to another point. Actually, a lot of people in the early church were martyred. You know, if you look at the some of the people who we've who who we've mentioned, Polycarp was martyred, uh, Ignatius of Antioch was martyred, um, and martyrdom becomes actually a very important uh, feature in, in the early church to the point that when you get to people like uh, Saint Augustine. Uh, St. Augustine of Hippo in Africa 
and uh, Cyprian of Carthage and things. The cult of the martyrs is so big, you know. Um, the blood of the martyrs is called the seed of the church. Uh, it's something which is nourishing. And people seek the intercession of the martyrs and they go on pilgrimage um, to the martyrs and relics of the martyrs become very important because it's like a tangible connection to somebody who is in heaven and the intercession uh, of of the saints is something that that um, uh, particularly in relation to the martyrs uh, they're sort of set out quite early on as being particularly important intercessors and and in, uh, in in heaven. Um, so yeah, I mean the early church is a church of martyrs, and this is one of the reasons why it, I think it grows so quickly. Uh, actually, well, oddly, yeah, <laughs> one would think that when there's lots of martyrdom, that actually the faith is suppressed. But actually, no, it grows so much, probably because of, of the witness that's shown, the charity that's shown, and the graces that are, that are dispensed through their through their intercession. But not only not only men like Polycarp and Ignatius of Antioch, you also have women. A lot of women are martyred in the early church. People like Perpetua and Felicity, who are martyred, I think, around two o three. So again, very very early on. Uh, and these were people who were, uh, well, I, I, Perpetua um, was a noble woman and she's educated and she was very young when she died. Uh, whereas Felicity was someone who was imprisoned with her and I know that she was pregnant. Uh, she was pregnant at the time and they still still chose to to martyr her. And they actually have something very interesting in, in, the, in the case of their... Um, of their martyrdom uh, there's an account of their martyrdom called the passion of perpetua and felicity and actually she speaks about um offering prayers for her dead brother um so this this is a quote now i saw she so she's in a, this is a, a, talking about uh, a dream that she she has i saw Denocrates, her brother who's died some years before very hot and thirsty and pale and filthy coming out of a shadowy place along with many others. It was for him I prayed. Between him and me there was a great gulf, so that we could not approach one another. And in that place where Denocrates was, there was a pool full of water. Its rim was higher than the boy's height. I'm, I'm skipping a bit, sorry. Uh, he could not drink because of the rim's height. Then I woke up and realised that my brother was suffering, but I believed that I could help him in his suffering, and I prayed for him every day. Uh, with tears and sighs that this might be granted uh, to me. Later I had shown, I had this shown to me, I saw the same place which I had seen before, with Denocrates now clean, well-dressed and cool. Uh, and the pool which I had seen before now had its rim lowered to the level of the boy's belly and he was continually drinking from it. So here then we see that prayers for the dead uh, is something which you find um also in the uh, in the early church, uh, so this is a document which comes from the from the third century, accounting the martyrdom of Perpetua, Perpetua and Felicity. And in this document, this is Perpetua uh, herself who's talking, saying that she's praying for her brother who died some years before, and that this had had a transformative. Her prayers had been efficacious for him for him and had a transformative effect. That she she describes seeing him as pale and filthy coming out of a shadowy place along with many others and then by the end of it he's now clean well dressed and cool after she's prayed for him and she has this instinct that she can do something to help her dead brother um so this then is what 
this would actually map on quite well to how Catholics understand our prayers working for the holy souls in purgatory. That the because of the communion of saints and because of our interrelatedness and things, the good things that we do uh, spiritually, not only materially, can have a beneficial effect for people not only here on earth in this life, but those people who are being transformed and cleansed of their sins in the next life. And this is something you find, of course, in scripture when he talks about the sin of the Holy Spirit. And he says, you know, this is uh, uh, the sin against the Holy Spirit is something which will neither be given forgiven in this life nor in the next, implying that there are some sins for which you are forgiven uh, after death. Um, so, yeah, you find these sort of little little signs and sort of i mean this is clearly an example of prayers for the dead being being uh something important in the early church um coming from an account of the martyrdom of perpetri uh, perpetua and felicity whether this is a, i mean i don't think we can go as far as to say that this account is a well-developed account of purgatory um it does map on well to what catholics understand as purgatory but that's saying something slightly different. It's slightly a slightly different claim I'm making there. Um, but yeah, so we see martyrdom, uh, the prayers of the martyrs are very important. Uh, relics and pilgrimages and things like that um, become uh, uh, important. People become very proud of their uh, of their local martyrs. And also, uh, you know, look, look at the claims of Rome. You know, Rome where Peter died, where Paul died, um, this is one of the reasons why Rome is said to be so preeminent is because, you know, not just did one apostle died there, but two great uh, uh, apostles of the Lord died there. Uh, yeah. And this is seen to be a boast of, of, of the holy city. Uh, yeah. So one of the other things that marks the early church is their radical hospitality. So it's, mm. it, it's, it's something you, you see come across in, in Acts and, and really, it, it comes from the fact that Jesus cared for the poor. So you know, we see how Jesus goes out of his way to to really care and minister to the poor, to uh, to others. And we see in Acts and in chapter six, the apostles appoint seven men, uh, as you said, as, as deacons, and they have the the work of administrating the feeding of widows. So these are are widows in a society where they you know they legally had uh, very little. They legally had had nothing and they, they weren't looked after so christians stepped up even in uh, these really early stages of of the church they stepped up and cared for them by supplying for their needs and, and paul also talks about this uh, in his first letter to timothy he said he where he calls upon uh, timothy to care for widows and those those who are in need and and this was incredibly counter-cultural i mean the church is really flipping the importance of society from those who are rich, those who are powerful, he's flipping um, they're flipping that to place the importance on those who are poor, those who are forgotten. Um, you know, there, there's um, uh, an essay I, I came across called The Order of Widows, and it looks at um, you know, lots of different um, things about the care of women and um, where uh, the social care for, for different people came from, the history of that, really. But the, the writer is... Um, Caveni is the surname but uh, she says in by the middle of the third century the church in Rome was caring for 1500 widows and other poor persons so the church took seriously this obligation to 
care and support the vulnerable persons uh, who they who they came across who who were in their midst i mean and we we see this in some of the writings so we already mentioned clement of rome he's writing in you know very early on at the end of the first century uh, and you know he's he is he is a pope so he speaks with such authority he says let the strong take care of the weak let the weak respect the strong let the rich man minister to the poor let the poor give thanks to god that he gave him one whom uh, his need would be satisfied through even the Didache says share everything with your brother do not say it is private property if you share what is everlasting you should be that much more willing to share things which do not last so you have this real care for those who are marginalized and even the uh, enabling of those who would would be seen as basically worthless in society they're given meaning they're given value because christ gives them value christ has uh, has recognized the dignity of each and every person so the church uh, does as well and puts it into practice with with these things calls everyone into uh, caring for for those around them and enabling uh, other people to to minister as as well within the church yeah, I mean, I, I, what you just said there, actually, about the distribution of, of gifts and things reminds me of uh, Acts, uh, Acts uh, 4, 32 to 35. Now, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. With great power, the apostles gave their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as owned land or houses sold them and bought the proceeds of what was sold. They laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. So there we see actually something that's a very strong very very strong claim that actually i'm not sure that we do see in the same way anymore in the in, in the church um uh not certainly on such a massive scale i don't think i know uh saint thomas of canterbury otherwise known as saint thomas beckett when he was made archbishop of canterbury he sold all of his goods and gave the proceeds to the poor um I don't know very many others who do the same. I know when religious, of course, when you become a friar or a sister or, or th anything like that, you give up your personal possessions. That's true. Um, but I don't know any who sold them all and then gave the proceeds to the poor. Uh, most people who I know just sort of gave away uh, the things that they that they wouldn't need um, or their family, uh, their family sort of kept them um, for other things. But here, I mean, it's very strong, isn't it? Uh, and no one claimed private ownership of any possessions, but everything they owned was held in common. And this is something that I think I could be mistaken here. I'd have to get a Franciscan to ask. I think this is one of the um, things that St. Francis of Assisi uh, wanted to sort of bring back and, and, and replicate. Um, yeah, I mean, the, the church has, I mean, developed a very strong social teaching uh reading things like rerum navarum i've often said you know my favorite quote from rerum navarum after your needs and your station have been met everything else that you own rightfully belongs to the poor um that's not something that that we often remember in our day-to-day -day lives is it you know uh, and then later on in that same passage there was not a needy person among them for as many owned lands or houses 
sold them and bought the proceeds of what was sold. And it's interesting that this is connected to their unity, to the unity of the church, the sharing of these things, because it's one body. Now, what do we read at the beginning of that passage that I, that I just read out? Now, the whole group of those who believed were of one heart and soul. So they all they all desired for this to be the way that things are. They all agreed on this, that this is how, how things should be. And they shared things amongst the gifts as was necessary amongst that whole body uh, materially. And I would, I would say that actually the church also does that spiritually. And this is why we pray for each other, not only in this life, but also in the life to come. And this is why the saints in heaven who have no need of our prayers because they've attained their end, they're in the presence of God, they still pray for us. And so by that, in that sense, they fulfill even more perfectly the command to love their neighbor uh, in, in heaven um, because it's in a, in a more intense way. It comes from Christ himself, you know, when he's speaking to the rich man, the rich man asks him what he, uh, what he needs to do to enter into eternal life, what he, what he needs to Absolutely. have the attitude. You know, Christ says, if you would be perfect, go sell all of your belongings and give them to the poor. So this comes very much from Christ. You know, the, the early church is not making this up in their teaching or in their practice. Like it comes very much from Christ. This is why religious, um, you know, give up all things and follow the evangelical council of poverty. But we remember from the catechism, don't we, that Jesus lays before all the baptized, all believers, uh, as as an example to follow the evangelical counsels of poverty, chastity, and obedience in a way that's appropriate for their own life. Another interesting thing, actually, to note, so from that passage that I just read before about holding all things in common, immediately what follows is the story of Ananias and Sapphira, or Sapphira, depending on what pronunciation you want to take. Now, that's very interesting. So uh, let me just read that, read that for you. So this is now uh, Acts chapter 5. But a man named Ananias, with the consent of his wife, Sapphira, sold a piece of property with his wife's knowledge. He kept back some of the proceeds and brought only a part and laid it at the apostles' feet. Right. So they sold something and they only gave part of it. Uh, they only laid part of it at the feet of the apostles. The feet of the apostles, they're symbolizing, of course, the whole church of whom the apostles are uh, leaders. Um, Ananias, Peter asked, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, were not the proceeds at your disposal? How is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You did not lie to us, but to God. Now, when Ananias heard these words, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard of it. The young men came and wrapped up his body and then carried him out and buried him. That's really interesting, isn't it? You know, so here is somebody who's who has kept something back from the service of the poor. Because that's that's what the what the goods were for, weren't they? They were for, they were for the good of the church, and we just read in the previous passages that they shared all things equally, um, so that there was not anyone who had any need. Um, but Ananias and and Sapphira keep something back, 
they withhold something from the mystical body of Christ in that way, and they withhold something, therefore, from the poor and from the mission. And what happens? You have not lied to us. You have lied to God. And he, he falls down and dies. So we see, actually, our care for the poor uh, is actually something that has life or death consequences. And it, whilst it might not be that people in this life are sort of dropping down dead um, because of their lack of charity towards the poor or, or, or care towards those in need, it may be something which weighs on their soul for yeah, eternal I think, life. Actually, it reminded it remind me of a, a story that's um, that was told, I think, by... I think by Fulton Sheen, um, he was saying that this he he was on the, this plane and there was this gentleman who was giving him, uh, giving him the riot act really for the whole of the flight. And Fulton Sheen sat there very very calmly, listened to it for hours and hours and hours. And then he um, Fulton Sheen just turned to him and, and asked, "How much did you steal?" And and that was it. I mean, it's all it's maybe the story is dressed up a little bit, but the at that point the the mandolin. Um, the man given Fulton Sheen grief uh, broke down and started crying, and it and it came out that he he had been a, a part of uh, his local church and had been collecting money, and as he was collecting money, he was he was also taking money for himself for several several years, and he, it got found out, and then he became bitter and very angry against the church, but that but I suppose that uh, speaks to that that point that you're making there that he became spiritually dead by by practicing that by taking money from mm. from the collection that wasn't his it was for intended for for other people yeah i mean i'm who knows this you know who knows how he was treated after after his sin was uncovered you know of course um, of course yeah but i mean god gave him the grace to meet archbishop fulton sheen uh, or maybe I he was he a, bishop or a priest at this conversion and he, um, Yeah, he converted, that could yeah. have been a turning point in his life, you know. Through so Christ again working there through his ministers, um, because in that moment, of course, Fulton Sheen doesn't just represent himself; he represents both God and his mystical body, the Church. Um, so he could give him that compassion and that forgiveness. Um, uh, on behalf of the church and on behalf of 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 god so yeah remarkable anyway is there anything else that we want to say about the about the early church the only other thing i wanted to mention was that that, that you know there's a huge amount of persecution against the the church in these early years and really you see that already on display in the book of acts you know, think of stephen he's persecuted and uh, eventually killed mm. and you have saul leading the persecutions of uh, of christians as well so you, as christianity spread throughout the roman empire you know, yeah. these, these uh, persecutions also spread as well and because it was a, a matter of life and death you know they had, they had to be very creative so they would gather together in the catacombs to worship and to celebrate the sacraments uh, but they would also find ways of showing another person that they they were christian so uh, you, you know the symbol the fish have you, have you seen the brother Thomas? It's a very simple yes. symbol, um, and the 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 symbol itself has a has a lot of meaning, and and it developed within the the early the early church. So it's seen on many many early catacombs, uh, and it's written about by Clement of um, Clement of Alexandria. But the the symbol uh, is suggestive of the multiplication of the loaves and and the fish by Jesus, but it it has its popularity because of a, another meaning. So the, well, I'm going to test your Greek knowledge. 
<laughs> the, <laughs> so the the Greek word for for fish is uh, ichthus. Yeah, there yeah. you go. You know it. Hey, and those uh, <laughs> not just a pretty face. <laughs> <laughs> so those the letters that make up um, the the word fish. Uh, they are Jesus Christus, mm-hmm. Jesus uh, Christ. Yeah, Theo, God. Okay, yeah, Eos Sota. Uh, he saves, or he's the saviour. Yeah, so Jesus Christ, son of God, saviour. So the, so the word, so basically the word fish in, in Greek, the, the letters for this word fish can um, spell out the, the first letters of that um, sentence, Jesus Christ, son of God, saviour. So Christians took this, uh, this um, symbol upon up themselves, and they referred to themselves as, as little fishes. Um, Tertullian, who's another of these early church leaders he he said we little fishes after the image of our ictus fish jesus christ are born in the water so they they took this image upon themselves so little fishes and then when they would meet um with other people they would draw this very you know very simple line uh, in the sand or you know in in some sort of material and the other person if they were a christian they would join it up and it would it would display a, a very simple sign of a, of a of a fish, but I think it's 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 evocative of how creative they were and how they took upon themselves these these images to really pass on this message to pass on the on the gospel and you know just in that one sen- sentence Jesus Christ, uh, Son of God, Savior you know there's so much uh, packed into into that with meaning and that can be passed on with the word fish <laughs> yeah and to receive the sacraments as well i mean when they were gathering gathering together it was to break open the word and to hear the gospel and also to uh, receive the holy eucharist coming together for christians was a very important thing and we have a lot of very early accounts of what worship looked like for the early christians they were a deeply a liturgical people you know, they celebrate the Eucharist, they have the word of God broken, they meet together on a Sunday. Um, there are all sorts of things. And also we, we have um, prayers handed down to us from the earliest times um, explaining things like the blessing of, of, of the gifts, for example. We have something called uh, the Roman canon and the words of institution and things like that. And these trace back again to the early church very early on. So... They were a deeply liturgical people, uh, uh, prayerful people, persecuted people, people who cared about the poor, and all of those essential elements of the church we find in the church still today. It might not always look look the same necessarily. I mean, the early church used to worship in Greek and uh, then in Latin and in other Slavonic languages as well. Uh, and now, of course, we have we 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 worship in in English and in the vernacular of other countries too, because obviously in the early church, Greek and Latin were were the vernacular in things. There's one last thing, one last story that I just remembered uh, that relates to something we were saying earlier about the poor, and talking about the treasures of the church. Um, it, it it comes from I think it's a story in the third century, so in the two hundreds of. A deacon in Rome who was called Lawrence. Um, there was a, a persecution of the church by the Emperor Valerian in the 200 sometime, I think it was. 
and um, he was told to collect all of the church's treasure uh, and bring it to the emperor. And he said, well, you know, there's so much treasure, it's going to take me three days to collect it all. The emperor Valerian gave him three days to collect the treasure. And on the third day, which is very significant for Christians, of course, the third day, because, of course, Christ rises uh, on, the, on, on the third day. Not the third day of the week, but the third day after the, the crucifixion. Anyway, um, he gathered together the sick and widows and the poor, uh, orphans, people who were very frail and old. Um, and he presented these people to uh, the representative of the emperor. And he said, these are the treasures of the church, the poor and the sick and the lame and the crippled and the widows and the elderly and orphans, the poor. These are the treasures of the church. That's something I, I think that um, we always need to remember and sort of come back to. Very often people think about the treasures of the church being wealth or chalices or artwork or or you know something like that but actually what deacon lawrence recognized was that the riches of the church are the church herself you know her people it's not that these other things are are without significance or are unimportant some of these things represent christ you know the altar for example represents christ but the people as being living stones temple temples of the holy spirit uh, the poor, the people who Christ treasured in his earthly life and now also in glory. These are the, the, the treasures of the church. Okay, I think that's a, a brilliant way to draw the episode to a close. Thank you for for listening. And, and we have some big news, I think, Brother Thomas, that you want to share. Mm. Yeah, so I'm being ordained to the diaconate. Uh, so uh, Deacon Lawrence in Rome, you know, uh, pray for me. Um <laughs> Yeah, I'll be ordained to uh, serve the church as a deacon on Sunday the 10th of July at 12 o'clock midday here in Oxford, Blackfriars Oxford. So do feel free to come. Uh, <laughs> it's a public celebration of the church. Um, but uh, pray for me uh, that I'll be a good steward of the gifts that God uh, has given me, that I'll be a good, uh, a good, holy and faithful deacon um, in the service of God and his church. Yeah, so that's it really. Keep me in your prayers. And um, yes, I will. I'll pray for you too. Uh, but yeah, that's Sunday, the tenth of July, at midday, and I'll be ordained by my brother, uh, Bishop Malcolm McMahon, the Archbishop of Liverpool, uh, who's coming um, to ordain me to the to the diaconate, and brother Albert, who is somebody who's been on this podcast before, talking about the Reformation in England. Uh, he's going to be ordained to the priesthood uh, on the same. Um, uh, on the same day in the same place in the same the same liturgy so uh do also pray for him that he'll be a good and holy priest and pray for his ministry uh because he'll be moving out of oxford and going to another going to another house but yeah keep us both in your prayers and also uh pray for dan that dan gets better uh he recovers from covid you can hear it in his voice the the thank you yeah. very much <laughs> anyway thank you for for joining us we'll be back next week with another episode god bless